1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancin. How can the library change the world? How can an art library change the art school or the gallery? Or even an art practice? In the recent book Shelf Documents, artists, writers, curators, teachers and librarians reflect on how they can use the beloved library as a source of inspiration and a field of action. In thinking about diversity in collections, the publication proposes art libraries as sites of intersubjective communication. Shelf Documents is rooted in a collaborative book acquisition project initiated by the artist Heide Henrichs at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Antwerp, in which her group integrated over 200 new titles in art libraries as a way to fill gaps, to amplify voices, and to seek out the self-initiated or the overlooked. I'm now joined by the three instigators of the project and the editors of the book, Heide Henrichs, Elizabeth Haynes, Hi, and Joey Tang. Hello. Welcome to you all. Heide, I want to start with you, and I want to start with a project that doesn't formally belong to shelf documents, but I think beautifully situates what it is that you are trying to do here. Um, I know that in 2017, you participated in the first ever edition of the Kathmandru Triennale in Nepal with a project called On Some of the Birds of Nepal. And in this project, you found yourself tackling some of the conditions of the art library.
2: Thank you, Pierre, for the, the question. Um, yeah, uh, it was a, a project about bringing A book or a folder of drawings that were made in the 19th century in um, Kathmandu, back to the place of its origin. So these these drawings, they are now housed in the collection of the Natural History Museum in London. And since they left Kathmandu in the 19th century, they never have um, returned to their place of, of origin. And um, the project basically tried out or developed the procedure to bring them back. And this, this meant like a lot of negotiation and between the institutions, but also to set up a location in Kathmandu that would meet the expectation of the Natural History Museum in London. So it was about like bringing to places in connection that couldn't be more different from from each other or in, um, how do you say that? In In
1: infrastructural terms, I guess. So maybe just to bring up the, the obvious bit of background here is that Nepal was under colonial, under British colonial rule in the 19th century. And of course, the drawings were produced under the instruction of the colonial administration.
2: Yeah, so the the drawings were commissioned by Brian Hodgins, who was the commissioner to Kathmandu at that time, and he collected a number of draftsmen around um, around himself. He did extensive research about every aspect of life in Kathmandu or in Nepal at um, at that point um, in time, a place that was very difficult to 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 reach and kind of. Out of out of place. I think the travel time was more or less three months to, between London and and Kathmandu. Um, so these were first documents of uh, the natural life in in this time the birds um, at at that time. And he imagined to publish actually a book from from the drawings like like the birds um, of uh, America. The Audubon publication that was had just been published um, a little bit before, and that was his kind of goal. But he never managed to to collect the money or resources for, mm. for that. And this way, the the drawings ended up in the in the Natural History Museum, but had kind of um, never reached the moment of multiplication of being printed and put into a form of of, um, of book. Mm.
1: Liz.
3: If I remember rightly Haider, Brian Hodgson did some of the drawings himself, but he also He didn't. He didn't he didn't do any of them. He didn't do any drawings. Oh okay. But mm-hmm. the but the people who did the drawings were Nepali artists. Yeah, and that's important
2: to to, to say, like the um friends of Hodgson um, who visited him, they basically introduced the way of um of representational drawing style as it um, it is used and in that sense like the the moment of producing these drawings is um, it's a shift in the way of like the draughtsmen's were working before in uh, religious context they were trained so to say to follow um, the interests of fortune mm,
1: thank you i thought this would be a good introduction to the broader project because it illustrates both the scope and the ambitions of the library practice, which begins with the project in Kathmandu. At the same time, the project is incredibly intimate and gestural, uh, perhaps standing in contrast to a certain extent with the constant pressure on producing decolonizing initiatives that we see in today's art institutions. Well, let's turn to the book itself now. Um, The book is a site where we find an equally subtle combination of ideas. So the book is at a certain level a reader in as much as it has contributions from the three of you, invited academics, um, also a couple of contributions from other artists. Um, but the book is also a manifesto, and it's also to a certain degree an artist's book. I will maybe talk a little bit about the what that means as an artifact later on. So in many ways, it's an object designed to be housed and be used in an art library. Liz, I want to turn to you to ask about this format.
3: Sure. I mean, I think maybe it might make sense if I if I read the very first part of the introduction. Actually, certainly. The book starts like this. So this is this is the beginning of the introduction to the book, where we're talking to the reader. We are holding this book. It fits in our hands and in our jacket pockets and in our bags. It doesn't fit very well on the shelf in the art library. It's too small. It gets lost between and behind monographs that stick out of the shelves. We also don't know where to put it. It isn't a reader. It isn't an artist book. It isn't documentation of a project or a catalog. It might recall a pamphlet, a roadmap or a recipe book, but it doesn't really tell you where to go or what to do. But we like this size. We want to stake a claim in a tradition of books that don't quite fit and that gently destabilize the parameters of a library And the design of bookshelves as much as the process of indexing. We want a book that gets misshelved all the time. When we're hunting for this book, we get to notice gaps on the shelves, and those contours in the library's mass and weight take in a sculptural quality and confer a particular landscape of origins, languages, labour, processes, and transactions that make these books possible. We start to map map that landscape more closely, but also to think about the journeys in that landscape. How do we travel from one book to another? Who are the guides? what gestures produce echoes and ripples as we learn from the books and each other so that's that's the introduction and i think that sort of sets out the principle that we didn't really want to take an authoritative position and i guess that's why the books the, the book is, is sort of made up of this kind of quite hybrid Set of of contributions. We didn't really want to take an authoritative position, but we wanted to kind of um, invite readers to share with us some of the explorations, uh, some of the discoveries, and some of the kind of thoughts that came out of uh, a project um, which Haider led at the um, Royal Academy of Arts in Antwerp, a research project in which Joey and I and a number of other contributors were part of. In that project, we were exploring something about the nature of the, of, of the academic library in the, in the academy. And I think um, Heider can probably speak more about that in a minute. And, and Joey was also um, uh, exploring the, the, the landscape as it were of the library in Columbus, Ohio, where he was uh, working at the time. And the book, the book kind of groups together those, those, those different kinds of thoughts and um, experiences from the project. So the book comes in four parts. We think about the institutions which house art libraries We explore a little bit the library itself um, as a a space, but also particularly as something that needs um, maintenance, that needs care, that needs labor. Mm -hmm. Um, We think about the book and how the physicality of books shape their use and, and their kind of circulation and the experience of reading them. And then particularly, I think one of the things that came up really through the project rather than something we could have imagined before was the idea of listening and and how and how you might listen with and mm-hmm. through books and finally we then think about the body of the of the reader so the bodies and difference in bodies being the one of the kind of key ways in which colonial ideas are disseminated and therefore like thinking about the body as a site of reading being one of the ways in which you need to think about undoing I guess some of the kind of colonial processes in the library so that's that's how the book is that's how the book is structured. But that, but that's, but again, all of the all the contributions within those categories are quite sort of looping and explorative.
1: Mm, that meandering nature of the book certainly seems appropriate for it. And I want to mention for listeners that the book is punctuated by dozens and dozens of drawings by Hita, which, in and of themselves, would have made a beautiful publication. Well, let's not start moving through the hierarchy of ideas that you introduced a moment ago, Liz. We opened with the institution, and of course we really met the museum through Haider's work with the Natural History Museum, but of course the institution could also mean the art school, which is usually the place that houses the library, but we also have to think about the library as an institution within an institution. So Joey, maybe this is a good moment to turn to you as someone who has been engaged in all three, if I if I'm right, all three versions of these institutions.
0: Sure. Um, well I thought maybe i will say a little bit about how Heide and I worked together and how she invited me into the fold of this project. Around twenty seventeen, um Heide, who's an artist and a teacher at the Royal Academy of Art in Antwerp, as a as a teacher in an art school where there's a library Meaning, an institution within an institution, there are often, let's say, gaps in knowledge or gaps in art historical lineage um, that persists in in the institution. What I find and what seems to echo with Heide's experience is that rather than only motored by protocols, there are also these subject subjective uh, experiences and. People who are shaping the library as it is, Heidi got a chance to to imagine a project within the context of the art school to uh in a way fill in the gaps um so to speak, gaps where artists and thinkers of color, queer artists, women and women identify artists and teachers uh, are missing on the, on the shelves of the art library. Um, So she started this really beautiful project of uh, working to fill these gaps. And I, as someone who began to work within uh, an art institution at an art center, at a art school in, in the middle of, in the Midwest of the U S also find it to be a, a, space where I love to engage with, Um, there were Mm -hmm. obviously gaps in the library where, um, in the art school where I worked at, um, maybe not to the same, not in the same way as as Heidi's library um, as the, maybe the conversations in in the U.S. uh, about diversity of the library runs Mm -hmm. on a kind of different track, Mm -hmm. let's say. But I was happy, very happy to to think with Heidi, and she invited me to to suggest books for her project. And when I started working in Ohio, um, I invited the library that was in my school to mirror those um, titles that we were introducing to to Also in um, in in Columbus, Ohio, um, what we found was there was this sort of a doubling of the library that that was taking place. Some books were, yeah. were already in the library where I worked at, um, in art school where I was working at, some were not. So we were able to kind of map the differences and the similarities between the two libraries. That's the physical manifest manifestation of the project. It's really to bring books into the library. And alongside Heidi programmed a series of events and talks in the library itself in, in Antwerp. And I did the same In Ohio, but in a different way, Uh, one was through construction of a bookshelf to display the books um, in the library. So making a kind of different shelving system to demarcate Mm -hmm. and introduce these these new books, but also to uh, invite Heidi to be an artist in the gallery uh, at the art school.
2: Yes, it's uh, it happens that in in the building in um, Columbus the library is exactly beneath the gallery space, so they're like stacked on top of each other. And um, this was something that I think is fitting perfectly the mm-hmm. the thought of the of, of the project that basically the um, practice is coming out of a, a background, so to say, and like it is practice is informed. And so, one we touched up earlier on it. Or um, Pierre, you mentioned um, the, the the drawings um, that mm-hmm. are inserted into the book, and these um, these drawings were basically the contribution to which the exhibition and we hung them in the um, exhibition space like in also in form of mirroring or um, in into the space suspended from the ceiling so that they would take on the position of the shelf, um, the level below. So kind of the structure would be extended into the library structure would be in a modest way extended mm. into the exhibition space. That was one intervention. And the second one was con- to connect the, um, the, the exhibition space with the library through a hole in the ceiling and uh, having a rope Um, that was like the similar rope that was also used for suspending the drawings from the ceiling um, to have it run from the ceiling of the exhibition space to the ground of the library space. And the rope would then be um, manipulated in a way that threads would be inserted or taken out. Mm. So it would become thicker and thinner Mm -hmm. and, um, the rope was basically a way of taking the line of the drawing into the third di- dimension.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so let this be a warning to librarians not to invite artists to their institutions lest they start drilling holes in floors and ceilings. But the way you describe the project, I understand it as a subtle intervention in, in the institution. And of course, with with things that are as static as libraries, this is about as radical a gesture as one can make. And, of course, there's a long history of artists trying to make interventions in the collections of art institutions like museums. So within all of this, I have a couple of questions. One relates to the relevance of the library um, as a place for collecting knowledge given that we of course live at a time where knowledge is produced, stored, cataloged and exchanged in all sorts of different places. And within that also the question of the relevance of an art library or a library that is cited specifically within an art school as a very rave kind of environment becomes relevant. And my second question is to do with identifying the gaps. And deciding how one fills them,
3: so I think that the, um, the, the question about I mean thinking about why art libraries why is it why, why would you want to intervene in an art library um, Although there are lots of other ways in which people access knowledge about art um, the the physical library itself remains a key way that um, that people involved in the pedagogy of art can point students in different directions it's a place where students go to find inspiration and it's a place where where those who are teaching art send students to, to to investigate further to learn more about contemporary art and obviously it's far from being an exclusive way in which they do that learning but the but the heart of that physical space and those physical books in an art school or in an art um, in an art contemporary art center means that it has it has it continues to have an importance and and people continue to invest in buying books for those spaces so, that the people who run those spaces obviously feel that 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 is still a kind of relevant part of the pedagogy and I think that Mm. what we were Mm -hmm. what we were particularly interested in was not only what is missing from the library but then about about some of the kind of processes and practices in the library so how so what does it mean if students go to look for a book in a library so first of all how do they find the books but then Mm. what actually happens from for, for young artists who's developing their practice they go and encounter another artist an established artist through the library as it were they make that encounter they make they meet another artist in the library virtually through the through the traces of that artist's work in in a book so what does that what does that actually mean and how and how does that kind of dialogue or 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 legacy how how does that work how how does it shape a young artist's yeah. practice so i think whilst there's been quite a lot of attention to the content of libraries, what is or isn't there. I think that what what we became interested in was not only what is there, but how is that content used? What how does it shape future generations of, of art practitioners? And then the other side of what of what we became interested in through the project, I think, is really about the care of books. So books not only sort of magically and eternally being there, but books as kind of fragile, dusty, used or unused objects that take up space that require labor to to be maintained and to be made accessible. And I think that this, I think to go back to Hyder's project in Nepal, this is one of the things that was, 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 which was very beautifully demonstrated by that project. So all of the books, all of the older books in at the Natural History Museum mm. in London are kept in special, you know, um, rarefied, air-conditioned circumstances in order to preserve them, their longevity. So the book of drawings that made its way from London to Nepal um, in London was kept at, I think, I would imagine, usually at something like 18 degrees Celsius. That's constantly at 18 hmm. degrees Celsius in order to stop it from, um, from eroding. Now, it was almost impossible. It, the, the project almost fell at the final hurdle when it reached Nepal because it was basically impossible for 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 the building and for the and for the institutions involved in the biennale to create a room that what that maintained that book at eighteen degrees Celsius. So obviously the book itself is one thing, but the kind of preservation of the book and how that book might travel or be in other spaces, yeah. and the 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 amount of energy one might imagine to to produce a eighteen degree uh, eighteen degree Celsius room in 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 Kathmandu is is very different. So thinking about Our books, not only as sort of uh, eternal objects Mm -hmm. that have kind of that that sort of bestow knowledge or abstractly kind of um, transfer knowledge, but thinking about the the actual practical ways in which young artists encounter them, but also and and more established artists encounter them, but also the the very the very Mm -hmm. physical forms of of maintenance that 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 books demand and that reproducing that legacy requires a lot of activity which normally goes unnoticed. The sort of, uh, yeah, the kind of invisible labour of libraries, I guess.
1: Mm, well, th- this continuity is an interesting image, though. I guess higher it isn't as though you were walking up and down the aisles between the bookshelves and simply spotted a glaring gap.
2: I think um, it was basically by noticing that um, artists I would refer to uh, wouldn't be uh, represented in the in the library. So it was a very um, very simple simple um, Mm -hmm. process and the tool i think um that that was used within the project was by um asking the advisors into the project to have a wider realm of expertise knowledge and interest that would open the the perspective in view and i think what is very important to acknowledges is that gaps will always remain like there is a library cannot be complete so it is it is a process that is never finished and that need to be that needs to be continued and i think one of the goals of the project was basically to raise the awareness around the gaps and that is kind of mm. the hope to for the future to create space that is more inclusive
1: yeah mm. So I think I think it might, might be interesting just to see the significance of of this work or whether maybe it's symbolic significance is to send the listeners to second-shelf.org which has a listing of all the books that you have introduced into your partner libraries, which numbers, the highest number I can see is 224. So we've done a fair bit of this. But what strikes me there is quite a lot of the names of the artists that you you include in this in this collection are actually quite quite well known I, mean, yeah. the, the, I think that the surprise is that mm-hmm. you had to as an artist intervention go and ask libraries to to go and stock books about or buy blue chip artists represented yes, by international galleries and represented in biennials so. In as much as, as when I was reading mm-hmm. Shelf Documents, the book, your book about the project first, I was expecting kind of much more to say much more diverse, much more international, much more marginal kind of list of names mm-hmm. that I wouldn't know. Here I'm I'm slightly sp- split. What, I mean, what do we say about institutions that have under the, the auspices of the decolonial project? And I now say this now almost an in inverted commerce because that's a hackneyed word by now. Mm. And a word that's been appropriated by institutions to kind of wash the hands of any real thought process. Is the reality not that our institutions are so behind their own stated goals from from 30 years ago as opposed to now? Mm. That how, how, how do we address this? Joey, do you want to talk about this maybe a little bit? Because you've been curating, presumably with an understanding that, that all these artists are already part of a canon.
0: Yeah, what but- we also did is to document the books that we have uh, introduced into the library in Antwerp and the library in Columbus. So there are actually some books that are already in mm-hmm. the Columbus shelves and some that are not in Antwerp. So that gives you a kind of a sense of the the discrepancies there. I think for me, I was really addressing addressing this idea of the classroom to library Mm -hmm. pipeline that seems to be one of the ways in which the library source their their list and i am keenly aware of how some of these artists that are quite uh well known are missing in the library and i think an other way to maybe look at this too it's um Maybe think about who gets published as well um obviously, mm. the route to have a book published on an artist's work necessitates a certain kind of career trajectory, and so we are hitting ourselves in into your question in a way mm. it's, uh, um how do how do we address that question um and I think this was uh our way of situating ourselves into the library. I have to say the way that we chose the, the books for my on my side were very much influenced by the, the artists who were also showing at the gallery in mm-hmm. the current season or the artists who are in the proximity and the artists who are in Columbus, Ohio. So there were representations and kind of a mirror of the programming as well. As you, I think, go down the list, there's a slight kind of interpolation of lesser known artists. Um,
1: I think what it reveals a little bit, this process, and this is addressed a little bit by one of your contributors, David Senior, in, in his essay in the book, is that there was a question of what it means to be included in the first place. and And if I was going to be difficult with you, I would ask you whether... Being included in this pseudo universal library, this pseudo universal all encompassing institution, is the best answer for anyone who had previously been included. Because you have this this enlightened model of bringing everything together under one roof, which which I think is well described by the lot of the birds from Kathmandu, where you know you take pieces of knowledge from around the world and and put them in a single volume and you 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 close them up in a 18 degree room for never to be able to circulate or fly again, except for the, this one occasion. So I've, I think that the fundamental question I have is, at which point you decide that the institution is not the place to to bring the bits of knowledge when they are missing? What alternatives are there? What else could you have done with the things that are missing? And, and where are they now, frankly, if they're not in the library, they're, they're, they're somewhere there, they're somewhere out there.
3: So I think one of the ways in which I began to think about it as we were working through the project was that was was to to situate basically the library more precisely in the in the sense that a library should be serving a community of readers, and that each library will have a different community of readers, and that community will be constituted. I mean, in the large part by the students and the and the staff of any institution mm. who are using it. Um, or in the case of a library within an art, a contemporary art centre, the visitors of the the art centre. But thinking about the kind of, very specifically about the geography of that readership and and the kind of makeup of that readership, and the potential readership. So not only the people who are already using the library, but the people who c- could be users of the library. So rather than thinking about the library as a, as a kind of place, uh, a general place, a sort of abstract universal collection of knowledge, to think about it as something which serves a community. And I think that's what David Sr. is mm. leaning towards in thinking about what, um, what the library for his art centre will be doing in, in that context. And, and, and when Joey was describing the ways in which he was um, interested in documenting something about the local scene and the, and the work that was ongoing in, um, in CCAD, in Columbus, I think those, those were both ways of kind of localising or situating the library more specifically. So, thinking about the ways in which within an institution books are selected. So we we, as a group started mm-hmm. to think, I guess, in, the, in initially, about what our ideal set of books would be in a library. What kind of library would we like to um, would we like to borrow from? What would we like to see there? But as we were worked through the project, we were beginning to think about the fact that most but most art libraries are made up of the kind of ideal sets of books of of a kind of um, eclectic mix of members of staff, but without any kind of organizing or consultation. And so the, it's, it's 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 generally very often the loudest voice that gets the books on the list, or the things that are most easy, or the things that come to hand most obviously. Um, and so, I guess what we started to think about for ourselves, but we didn't um, actually kind of go as far as introducing as a as a as a codified protocol, was mm. what kinds of processes within institutions lead to the selection of books, and can those institutions adapt their processes so that they are better suited to the communities that they want to they want to serve i think that was where we that's where we're headed
1: hmm heider i think i have a slightly different version of this question for you um which might take us back towards your practice so towards the end of the book i realized that a big chunk of your drawing practice consists of copying out the work of other artists and while, of course, there is a way to read this as a certain homage, there's also a way to think about what you're doing here as a certain librarianship, um, quite literally in a medieval way, copying out existing sources.
2: Yeah, I, I think for me, this process of redrawing is really a process of, of understanding and In the very first place, when I started that, it was also it was had not this attention. It was a practice that came out of a moment of not knowing what to do and finding myself in a place I couldn't orientate myself. So, and um, I think that it became this project of inscription, and this body of work is really something that is related to the project. It's only there that I framed it, and it is definitely a very subjective collection and it's, it documents a, a, a continuation of an of an interest or like a change of interest. Also. And it is really a way of, since the in, in the structure of the book, we end up with a chapter on the body. I think this process of, of drawing is also a very, like it's a bodily experience. It's leading the reading process through the hand onto the paper again. And there are thinner and thicker lines in the drawings.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, very, very rudimentary comment, I found it incredibly useful that at the very beginning of the book you reproduce a few drawings by Haned Achbov I mean, they're essentially lined paper with tiny, tiny marks on, in pencil, which um, I'm going to show you now on camera. Have been fantastic for taking notes. So I'm afraid, that I've defaced many of the drawings in the book. <laughs>
2: That's by, beautiful. By
1: writing, writing all over them, and I'm trying to read my read my questions out of them. Um,
2: yeah, it's a writing exercise, like her yeah. drawings. is a set of writing exercises.
1: Yeah. For yeah. for those listeners who who don't know the practice of Hannah de and a lot of her work consists of essentially like writing out letters or numbers, one after another, page after page after page.
2: It's also a universalist project. Huh? Ah,
1: yeah, exactly. Well, we've got a um, duodecimal system sooner or later. Let's let's shift scales a little bit um, and go back to the conversation about drawings. Liz, you have an essay in the book that considers the role of a reader as a private or a public figure or as an autonomous figure. And I think that's a, that's a super interesting way to think about the history of librarianships. And I'm interested in particular in the political dimension that, that, that reading and circulating information has. Of course, we have this idea that knowledge, knowledge leads to change, knowledge leads to liberation and in an institution, as, in, as we, we've experienced, having been through university-like institutions, all, all four of us, that doesn't necessarily follow. But the evolution of a reader as a, as a figure I think it's an incredibly interesting. Yes,
3: yeah, this is this is an idea again that emerged for me through our conversations around the project. So through thinking about who might access these new books. So if we fill in the gaps as we as we've been saying, if we filled in the gaps in the library, who who is going to be using them and how are they used? So historically there have been a, a number of different kinds of more common ways of reading. So I guess typically now if we imagine someone reading um, even though we know probably most reading is done on an electronic device, if you said, Oh, someone is someone is going to read a book, you mm. would, you would imagine them sitting somewhere on their own um with the book open in their hands, kind of looking down at it. That's still the kind of iconic way of, of, of understanding reading a book. But that's quite a specific way of, of understanding what reading might be, which isn't hasn't been common through history or in, in different contexts. So in medieval times, mm-hmm. um silent reading. Is something that became a practice. So previously, uh, people would would always read out loud. So everything yeah. that was read would be verbalized. Um, and you can tell um, the moment that reading became a silent individual practice through the different architectures of reading spaces. So gradually, people could sit closer to each other, as it were, and still and still engage in private study because they weren't verbalizing the things and interfering with each other's um, others practices through sound. In in other moments in time, people haven't had access to books as individuals. So they've had to do various kinds of forms of communal reading practices, mostly reading out loud to groups, which is still common in in, in different forms of kind of reading groups today. And in different parts of the world, access to different books is still very difficult. And in fact, um, earlier on, Pierre, you were talking about the ways Mm -hmm. in which New Book Network allows people access to Ideas contained in books, which are otherwise locked into um, academic publishing um, formats, which are incredibly expensive and otherwise inaccessible. So that the ways in which sort of the knowledge of books is used and read and shared is 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 really diverse. And I and I wanted to kind of think about whether in the future or whether a, a decolonized library, I guess, would continue to be predominated by the practice of of silent individual reading or whether we might imagine new ways of experiencing the relationship between our books and our bodies in a library space.
1: Mm, I think the pandemic has to an extent been an interesting moment that has made visible some of the reading group activity as all our life has moved online. Uh, one of the things I remember noticing is that someone has set up a reading group that was then turned into a podcast for reading A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Qatari and of course, we, we can imagine how that how that went along. <laughs> but Liz, you, you also interview um, in the book Samia Malik, who is the instigator of Women of Colour Index, which is a reading group based at Goldsmiths University of, of London. So I wanted to, to think about further about the collective act of reading, but also thinking that I've got all three of you editors and contributors to the book, also about the act of collective writing, so, to a certain extent, it's a question of efficiency. You know, to bring a revolution of buying three hundred books to a library still requires a committee. But I'm interested fundamentally in the way that you set about capturing that process as as a book in itself.
3: So one of the one of the elements of the book is an interview or a discussion I had with with Samia Malik. Um, so Samya, yeah is the is one of the co-founders of the Women of Colour Index Reading Group, and the Women of Colour Index is a, a collection of of documentation about the work of women of colour, which is held at Goldsmith's um, in the Women's Library at Goldsmith University in London. And that was undertaken, I think, starting in the, in the 1990s, a, a collection, just, just, just any way of kind of bringing together mm-hmm. newspaper clippings, any kind of review, magazines, which, uh, which documented the work of, of, of a specific set of, of women of colour working in the UK at that time. So that was a sort of snapshot in time. And now that, that archive is being used by the mm-hmm. Women of Colour Index Reading Group um, as a means of kind of sharing and exploring that. Particular set of work, which remained extremely underrepresented in kind of large-scale gallery contexts or or, or, or or exhibition contexts or indeed publication contexts. So it's women's practices that were were largely that were largely kind of under the radar, um, although many of them are now being more rediscovered. So the Women of Color Index Reading Group was a way. So what what they do is they um, each time have a, a short article about an artist who was working in that period, which is which is read aloud. And then and then discussed in different ways in in kind of pairs and in groups. I participate in one of their reading sessions, and they they organise them in such a way that it they pay close attention to differences in voice and differences in ways that people want to read aloud or experiencing reading. Uh, so there's an attention to different kinds of w- ways of engaging with with reading. And then there's the, and then of course they're dealing with the subject matter and. And offer people an opportunity or a space to reflect on the difficulties of being or producing or participating in the art world, coming from um, coming from, I guess, a a position of not being a middle class white man predominantly, but also, I mean, also different kinds of different kinds of ways of feeling excluded from art production and from art context. So they they've been doing that for some time, and I think one of the one of the one of the remarkable things about that work has been the ways in which speaking out loud some of the kind of printed statements adds adds a kind of particular sort of power to them so women who were talking about in the 1990s in interviews about the experience of of racism of 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 direct racism and the ways in which they've indirectly mm-hmm. been um been dismissed or ignored in, as as artists speaking some of those Speaking some of those claims out loud and hearing them in, in a space with other people really shifts the emphasis or the kind of experience of, 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 that, of that moment, I think. And it also, of course, engenders ways of, of discussion about what has and hasn't changed in that time. A lot, has, a lot of things have improved. Samia in that interview reflects on her experience as first an art student and then an art lecturer in different arts institutions in London so there's there's been a lot of positive change but there's also a lot that I mean as, as everybody understands that that really still needs to be done so the kind of collectivity in that I think is is beautiful but Samia also points out can be very difficult like the, the holding that as a collective space holding it as a space which is safe for discussion and reflection around around racism and exclusion and gender. It's something which has brought a lot to the founders of that group, but it's also something which has been extremely challenging. I think collective work is hard. I think that's something which comes out of that of that interview. Mm. I think for us, um, in terms of working together, I think one of the things that we th- that was very enjoyable for me personally about about working on shelf documents was the opportunity to work in ways that felt quite slow. So at the time of at the time of producing this book I was also working as an academic historian so working at the University of Bristol as a, as a history lecturer and researcher and the sorts of ways in which books are produced usually, as a, uh, if you're an academic historian, the ways you would normally write a book uh, are quite time pressured and also quite, um, they're, they're mm-hmm. a very strong format. You know where you're going before you start. You have to basically write the yeah. book before you even start writing the book in order to sell it to the publisher who then commissions the book that you might mm-hmm. want to write. Um, and very little can kind of change or evolve in that process. And yeah. fundamentally, it's quite a boring way i mean it's not i mean it's just an extremely boring way to write and to and to be uh, a researcher and and to be a person in the world so one of the things that was really enjoyable for me about working on shelf documents was that um the nature of the book that we were producing was very open and changed a lot as we were working on it but also the process of collective writing so the one of the ways in which we decided what the book was was through writing the introduction and we wrote that together very slowly, <laughs> we we met we met once a week for several hours uh, for a couple of months, I guess. Right, that's the uh, that's more or less how how it worked. And um, we had an open we had an open document which we which we sort of discussed. And sometimes we were working at the same time, and sometimes we were sort of working in a more linear way. Um, but really, what we understood of the project and what we understood that we wanted the book. To eventually be came through this kind of long, um, very inefficient by most standards process. We wrote much more than we used, and we learnt an awful lot along the way. It was a, it was a, it was an unusual process mm. of writing for me, but one that I found extremely satisfying. I learned so much more from my collaborators working in that way. I forget.
1: Mm, beautiful, Joey. I want to come back to you because this is something you address. In your essay, you talk about your approach to curating through the prism of what you call slow programming. And I think the the contradiction that I I find in in what you're saying is that you set out to achieve some counter institutional aims, essentially. You're trying to get under the skin of the institution, subvert some collection policies, and do something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And you talk about the, the slowness both in the book, both in the project, but also in your programming in general, Joey, you, you, you put value in being slow and pausing and, and not rushing to deliver solutions. Yet, if we think about the institution, whether it's the institution of the library, of the university, or even the institution of the state, or in a cultural institution in an abstract sense, like one of the first things we associate with these formations is the slowness. I mean, there's nothing more... A snail-like than a university in which you know you want to repair a broken chair, you need to form a committee. <laughs> How does this approach square up with this <laughs> revolutionary or radical idea? That's the contradiction I'm I'm, I'm slightly bemused yeah. by, but but also intrigued by.
0: Um, no, that's that's a really good question. I think I talked about the labor of this way of working, the slowness, not meaning there's no work put into it but the attention and the attentiveness towards all that is happening and the continuation of things in motion i think maybe maybe that is in itself the revelation of the contradiction of what slow really is um Mm -hmm. what you're talking about the kind of things that takes forever to do. And and I think what Heidi and I tried to do too, we didn't sign anything between the two schools. And we were very sure if we would be asked to do is to properly do an agreement because it's a collaboration between two institutions. It's There's a bunch of books being bought, there's a book being produced. Um, and I think we really want it just so slightly go between these gaps that actually do exist for the good of the project. But I also want to maybe go back to what, what Liz was just saying as well. Putting this book together was also the beginning of the pandemic, so it was a moment when books were not even circulating in mm. anywhere in the world. Most parts of the world, they were not meant to be circulated. People were not allowed in the libraries. And so we were really writing at the moment when books were like standing still. Um, production was halted, though it was a very slow process. It it was the pandemic that allowed us to be able to kind of connect in those those ways, which um which really gave the book a kind of attention otherwise wouldn't have.
1: Mm, when talking about the care that it takes to produce an object like this. Even though you said in the introduction that this is not an artist book that we're looking at, um, it is clear that you have paid a lot of attention and care to its appearance. Um, And indeed, you have a section with one of the contributors, Sarah de Bond, which focuses on typography. And if I understand correctly, you even had the font for the book especially designed.
2: No, it was not designed for the book, but it was, um, Sarah de Bund suggested, like throughout the project, also for the website, um, like the use of, of LELO. And um, it is like her approach is to, to, um, to look behind also how things are constructed and um, in that sense to say like, okay, I use only fonts that are designed by women, That's her concept. So, and next to Lelo, there's Diotima used in the book, and that's um, designed by Gudrun Sapp. And I think, like, this is also like for the slow process. Sarah was already involved into the project, like, yeah, in 2000 and. 19 when we were starting to work on the ex-libris and the website and then she so to say followed the whole process i think had a good idea of um what we what we wanted and so um there, there's another form of organic collaboration so so to say and she um also yeah, suggested like the use of the paper which like you have in the first edition this very like um, almost um, mm-hmm. yeah the, the texture of the of the cover has a certain tactility mm-hmm. and um, inside the the papers it's it's a recycled paper and it is a paper that is not where the text section is printed on which has a certain um, irregularity inside mm-hmm. so it's not so even all these um, details really like form this this um, this particular object that can travel through the um, through through the shelves, the bags, and but also through the hands.
1: And hmm. well, it's a beautiful object. Liz, you want to come in?
3: So again, to kind of return to your question about the value of libraries or, the, or what libraries even mean or can do in, in the kind of process of decolonization or or thinking about the ridiculously uneven and, and difficult legacies that they all carry, thinking about the communities that use libraries, one of the things that's difficult about an academic um, library and particularly an art school library is that most of the users of that library ha- are in very precarious positions. So all of us, whilst producing this book, were working in um, into te- and in, in temporary contracts in this kind of project-based way, and the students themselves are, are also, you know, they're, they're they're also a kind of temporary community. They're constantly kind of being they're turning over, and new students mm-hmm. are arriving. So it's in, in some ways, it's it's the library. We don't want the library to be a kind of universal thing. We don't want it to be eternal, but it does nonetheless has for all of us provided a sort of um. Kind of place of haven in a min- in for whilst we were living precarious lives, so whilst we don't want a kind of universally and and kind of eternal institution that that kind of dominates or dictates what we do or don't how we how we see our lives or or, or how we understand contemporary art, the permanence of the library has provided a refuge for all of us and that's something which Hyda's drawings speak to is her is her refuge in different kinds of libraries using mm-hmm. libraries as a place of, of refuge in precarious situations. All of us found, um, I think, some kind of comfort in this project. Through our own moments of precarity during the production of the book and d- during the project itself, mm. but it's also something which is mentioned by Laura Larson. I, I think many artists have the experience of working in libraries because they're warm, they're comfortable. You have th- you have lots of things to look at around you, and they're open in, in you know they're open in hours which are often longer than many other kinds of similar spaces. Yeah. So you can they are they are places which provide physically a kind of safe haven for artists to work and I think that's that's something which is often apart from apart from the content the books on the shelves I think that's something to really important really important to remember about art libraries is that they are a place where artists work that's I think a key thing.
1: Hmm. Interesting well I'm going to put in my vote for turning up the temperature in the British Library where I spent much of my time with <laughs> that's overly overly over-conditioned
3: Right. Yeah, I always I always shiver in in, in, in libraries. I have, I have to take extra clothes, yeah.
1: <laughs> thank you all for joining me, and thank you for your beautiful work.
3: Thank you, Pierre, for having us. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Pierre. Goodbye.
1: The list of books involved in the Second Shelf Project is available on 2nd Shelf document, Art Library's Practice, edited by Heide Hendricks, Joey Tang, and Elizabeth Haynes, with contributions by Melanie Lowell, Laura Larson, Elisa Sanchez, and many others, as well as drawings by Heide Hendricks. is published by Bee Books. I'm Pierre Anser, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.